Congratulations. Thanks, Mom. Yeah, great job, kiddo. Thanks, Grandpa. So, what's your 15-year plan? Oh, no, not this again. Do you have a job yet? Give me some time. Every time he comes over, he makes me feel like a kid again. Uh, I don't know. Jobs seem hard. Your estimated wait time is 97 minutes. 97 minutes? Come on! All right, here it is. I pulled the MLS data on this luxurious short self, and it seems to be priced pretty appropriately, according to the CMA, and depending on your DP, you may not even have to pay PMI. Huh? Who's on the Parker's desk? I just went. Bro. It's not working. The only choices I have is a lion, wagon, and zebra. Sounds like you're gonna lose. She really is beautiful. Thank you. Guys. Congratulations again. Thank you. you got it from here, okay? All right, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Honey, honey. Sir, what's your number? What number? Next. The test results are in. The diagnosis is rheumatoid arthritis. What's a rumored artist? Um, excuse me? Yes? I thought refills on juice were free. Um, I'll go ask my manager. Good. Oh my gosh, I am so sorry. Oh my goodness, are you okay? Adulting is hard. Uh, most of you will not care about this, a few of you will. I love the fact that there's a guy in a Steelers jersey in that video. I hated the fact that was Le'Veon Bell, and it just reminded me of the terrible year we've had. But most of you don't follow football, so you don't care anyway. Um, welcome to Journey. If I hadn't a chance to meet you, my name is Matt. We're starting this brand new series, Adulting is Hard, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to start with a question that I'm going to admit up front. It's a dumb question. It's a dumb question because I already know the answer to it, and so do you but just play along with me for just a second, okay? Here's the question. How much better would your life be if it were conflict-free? How much better would your life be if you were conflict-free? Of course, the answer is it would be incredible, wouldn't it? If, if we could somehow hit a button and there was no conflict left in life, you would wake up tomorrow morning excited to go to work or you'd wake up excited to go to class. You would be looking forward to that family road trip or that big family vacation that's planned for this summer that right now you're dreading because so-and-so is going to be there. We've all got that situation in our family at some point, haven't we? And you would be, you would be looking forward to uh, hanging out with the neighbors in the backyard that you hang out with because your neighborhood, everybody would be neighborly. If, if life were conflict-free, Sporting events would even be exciting from the standpoint of when it got done. All the parents, coaches, referees, officials, you know, players, everybody would just gather for a big group hug after every game. Wouldn't, it's probably pushing it too far. I mean, it, it would never happen. But can you imagine what it would be like if life were conflict-free? The reason I bring this up is simply because isn't it true that conflict is part of what makes adulting so hard? It's part of what makes it so difficult. Now, if you, for some reason, haven't been tracking along and you're not familiar with this term, adulting just refers to all the stuff that you don't have to deal with when you're young, and then suddenly you start living on your own and you're responsible for yourself, and you realize, oh, I gotta make sure that my tires get rotated every so many miles and get the oil changed, and I gotta make sure I get all the bills paid and fold all the laundry and you know pay all the insurance and have everything fully insured. It's all of that stuff that, as you start to get older and start to deal with things, 
you have to deal with. And some of you are amazing at it. I'll give that to you. Some of you are incredible. I meet some of you, and it's, you know, you're able to keep the laundry folded and the house clean all week long, and it's, you floss every day. I don't, I, like, I don't know how that happens, but you floss every day. Everything just seems to work good for some of you. But for the most of us, we run into from time to time, maybe from week to week, for some of us every day, we run into issues that just make adulting a little bit difficult. As I was getting ready for this series, I was doing some research and ran across a few perspectives people had that I just thought were great. Now, just for the fun of it, I thought I'd share them with you real quick. One person wrote this, being afraid to check your bank account is the adult version of being afraid to check your grades. Do you, you marry, well, that's a college student, which I find is funny because somebody commented under this tweet and put, college is when you're afraid of both. Can't check your grades or your bank account. Well, you, you get that, right? Somebody else wrote this. I attempted to adult today, went to grocery store to find something to make for dinner, couldn't decide, so I bought a box of Reese's Puffs and a gallon of chocolate milk, which according to Nate Bargatze is a great post-workout drink. So I don't know if any of you are Nate Bargatze fans, but you've been there too, haven't you? You just try to do the right thing, and you're like, no, it's too hard, and you just, you just give in. Uh, one more I ran across was this. Adulting is like looking both ways before you cross the road or the street and then getting hit by an airplane. You've had some weeks like that, haven't you? Where you think, I got it all together, I did everything I could do to prepare, and then something totally unexpected comes and knocks you off. The reality is, here's the thing, here's why we're talking about this for the next few weeks. All the stuff that we talk about when we refer to adulting, all the stuff, you know, paying your taxes and uh, making sure you keep a job and, you know, grocery shopping, all those things that just are stuff you have to do, it can be annoying sometimes, and it can be difficult to get all done sometimes, but that's not really what makes adulting so hard. I would suggest there's something way deeper than that. As a matter of fact, there's something going on inside of us that makes a lot of the stuff externally more difficult for us, or if I could say it this way, it's what rattles around inside our hearts that keeps us from adulting well. This is typically what gets us. It's the stuff that's rattling around inside of us. That there are things happening in you that make it hard for you to do the things that you know you should do. And there are things happening in me that make it hard for me to follow through on the stuff that I promise I'm going to follow through on. That's what makes it so difficult. So for the next few weeks, all we want to do is this. I want to thought, let's start a conversation around some of the stuff inside of our hearts that makes adulting so difficult. Because if we fix that, a lot of the other symptoms and a lot of the other issues would just go away. And I'll just warn you up front. I feel like these, whenever we have conversations like these, they're never comfortable. They're always really tough. And the reason is simply this, because there is in you and there is in me this um, innate reaction to want to point a finger and blame and say, well, it's not my fault that's so hard. And it's not my fault that I'm dealing with that. It's not so my fault that I, I feel that way. There's something in all of us that wants to look out a window and blame instead of looking in the mirror and change. But that's what requi is required of anybody who learns how to adult well. That's what's required of anybody who decides to, I'm going to live life in such a way that I make wise decisions and I end up at the place in life that I ultimately want to end up at. At some point, you have to learn the skill of looking at what's going on inside of you at identifying the stuff rattling around in your heart that you know this, I know this, that, that wants to hide and none of us want to admit, and everybody around us can see it, but we can't see it for ourselves. The people who adult the best are the people who are able to self-identify those things and, and this is a key part, and then deal with them. So I thought, let's just talk about some of that stuff because I think we all want to be people who get to the end of life and know we lived it wisely and we lived it well. And so we're going to just dive into the deep end today 
talking about relational conflict because most of us, I would say the majority of us, have to deal with relational conflict on a semi-regular basis. As a matter of fact, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have some type of relational tension or conflict you're dealing with right now? It may be very overt and everybody may know about it and it may be really obvious. It may be one of those things that it's just, you know, it's out there on social media or it's out there in your family or it's out there in the workplace and everybody realizes there's tension and conflict and nobody's speaking to each other. It may be that overt or this happens a lot. For some of you, you're not the kind of people who want to address it directly. So it may be the stuff you're avoiding and nobody's saying anything about it, just trying to sweep it under the rug. But the reality is there's a tension there, and you know there's a tension there, and they know there's a tension there. Nobody just wants to talk about the tension. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, the thing is this. You can do whatever you want to do with that. Like You, you get to choose how you handle conflict, and I wouldn't uh, presume that I've got the authority to sit and tell you how you ought to handle that because you, you can value what you want to value as if you're not a follower of Jesus. And you can not deal with it. You can blow up. You can just carry grudges your whole life. But I think we all know that's not wise. And for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who do follow Jesus, the option of doing those things is really off the table. And the reason I say that is simply the whole reason Jesus came to this earth was to resolve the relational conflict between us and God. That was his whole mission. That was his whole point. And he says the example and said, now I want you to love one another the way I've loved you, which included I want you to handle relational conflict the way I have modeled it for you. And for those of us who are Christians, if you're not, this next part doesn't apply to you. But for those of us who are Christians, this really is true. Our ability to get along with one another is a sign of how well we follow Jesus because it's what love requires of us. One of the things Jesus said was going to be a trademark or a distinguishing characteristic of his followers was the unity and the love that they showed towards one another. So whenever there's a relational conflict as a follower of Jesus and we don't deal with it, it is a sign of immaturity on our part. It's a sign of a struggle we are having in terms of understanding what it means to follow Jesus well and to do what love requires of us. So what I want to do today is simply this. We're just going to start a conversation around this idea of how do you deal with relational conflict? Why are you experiencing it? Why am I experiencing it? What should we do about it? And what are the things that are out of our control? Because there's always part of it that we have no control over. Now, to get us kicked off, I want to read you a little insight into human nature. And I find this fascinating for a couple reasons. One, because it was written 2,000 years ago, and yet when we read it, you're going to go, oh, that's me. Oh, that's them. Oh, that's us. Because human nature in some ways hasn't changed a whole lot over the last 2,000 years. So 2,000 years ago, James, who was a brother of Jesus, that's the other part I find fascinating. James, who was a brother of Jesus, gave us some insight into human nature in regards to how to deal with relational conflict, that I just think is so powerful if we could wrap our minds around this and if we could begin to practice this, it would change everything in terms of the tensions that we tend to feel between us and other people. So James starts by asking you and asking me a question. Here's the question he asks. What causes fights and quarrels among you? To which you already know the answer to that, and so do I. The answer is they. They are what cause fights and quarrels among us. We all feel that way, don't we? If you're in the middle of an argument or you've got some type of conflict going on with somebody and people ask you, well, what caused that? The answer is they caused it, and it's something she didn't do. It's something he did. It's something that they said. It's something they refused to do. Whatever the case may be, it always comes back to a they. And then James is implying another question here, which is, well, what would end all the fights and quarrels among you? To which, again, the answer is, well, well, they could. They could. It's really simple. If, if he would just go ahead and if she would come and acknowledge that she messed up and if they would just, it's always they. If they would do what's right, then we wouldn't fight. 
To which I think James would then ask us, okay, well, if that's the case, then who defines right? To which we would say, well, we define right, of course. It sounds a little cocky, but have you ever been in an argument where you thought you were wrong? I mean, it doesn't happen, does it? Every now and then, I will be in an argument, I'll be in a, a discussion with my wife. I wouldn't call it an argument. I'll be in a discussion with my wife. No, we'll be arguing. I'll be in an argument with my wife, and I'll get part of the way into it, and I'm certain I'm right, I'm certain I'm right, because that's my default. I always start with I'm right. You know, you do too. So I'll, I'll think I'm right, I'm right, and I'm right, and then I'll get so far in, and she'll start making a case, and I'll realize, oh, no, I'm wrong. That does happen to me every now and then. And so what I do at that point is I always stop, and I say, honey, I'm so sorry. I'm terribly wrong. I'm probably wrong most of the time. Forgive me. I'm just going to go with what you say. No, I don't say that. Um, I just up the argument and change the discussion. Have you ever done that? It's like, oh, shoot, I'm going to lose this argument. So then it's called switch tracking. You just bring in a totally other issue and try to get them on another track. Why? Because there's something in us that always thinks we're right, and then there's something in us that definitely doesn't want to admit that we're wrong. And James' point is, okay, we always go into fights and quarrels assuming that it's a they problem. And maybe it is a they problem, maybe it's not a they problem. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. But it is not that that creates the tension. It's actually the way we manage that that creates all the tension. It's when we demand that they meet our terms and they come to our side and they see our perspective and we will not budge until they do. That is why fights and quarrels and tensions persist. As a matter of fact, James addresses this. He asks a second question that's not nearly as comfortable as the first one. He alludes to this. He says, don't they, the fights and quarrels, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? In other words, James says, okay, listen, let's be honest. The reason you fight every time you're in an argument, it's because you're not getting what you want. Isn't that true? To which we would all have to go, well, well, yeah, but what I want is a good thing. And James isn't arguing that. Maybe what you want is a good thing. Maybe what you want is the right thing. You may want to be respected. You may be fighting because you don't feel like you're being understood. You may be fighting because you just want to be cared for. You may be fighting because you want justice. You may be fighting because you think someone is being abused in some way or, or you know, taken advantage of in some way, and so you're going to come to their defense. James says maybe what you want is a good thing, but can we at least acknowledge that the whole reason fights, quarrels, and tensions arise between people is because somebody's not getting what they want, even if what they want is the right thing. And then he begins to allude to the problem. And the problem is not that you want something that's bad, because maybe you want something that's good, maybe not. But the problem is how you and I approach communicating about and addressing what it is we want that we're not getting. That's where things get sideways, and that is the direction James is about to take this. He says, your problem is not that you want something you're not getting. Your problem is not that you want something wrong. Maybe you want something good. Your problem is that you're approaching that conversation in the wrong way. And here's the picture he paints for us. He says, you desire, in other words, you're wanting something, but that you do not have, so you kill, which sounds really extreme. But James isn't referring here to murder, although this is behind most murders. Here's what James is referring to. He's actually hearkening back, and his readers would have probably understood this, the readers of this letter. James is referring back to something his brother said in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember Jesus said one time, hey, you've heard in the Ten Commandments it says don't kill, but I'll tell you if you get angry with someone, it's as if you killed them. And the point Jesus was making was simply, I, wanna, I want you to I raise the bar a little bit. I want you to understand that there's something that's 
deadly, and it's more than just murder. It's an anger left unresolved. It's an anger left unchecked. And when you demonstrate anger anytime you don't get what you want, you will end up wrecking all the relationships around you. He continues on, James says. He says, you covet, which just means you want it so bad you're not going to let go. You want it so bad that I'm going to keep fighting for this until I get my way. He says, you covet, but you can't get what you want. And so because of that, you quarrel and fight. Now, just to simplify this, here's, here's the simple point James is trying to help us understand. That you can't solve a problem if you're not clear about the problem. This is where you have to start. You can't solve a problem if you're not clear about the problem. In other words... You will never learn how to deal with relational conflict in a healthy way because you can't avoid it. You can't get rid of it. But you'll never learn to deal with it in a healthy way if you always assume the problem is the other person and you're not clear about what's really driving the conflict. If you can't at least look in the mirror and acknowledge, wait a minute, part of the reason I'm so upset is I'm not getting what I want. Now, is what I want a good thing or not? And part of the reason I'm so upset is because this issue isn't being addressed. In other words, what he's trying to help us do is separate between the problem and the person we're dealing with. Whenever you take a quarrel or a conflict and you make it all about the person on the other side, when it becomes personal, it becomes irrational. Have you noticed that? When it becomes personal, it becomes irreconcilable after a period of time. When it becomes personal, it becomes so prideful because now it's two people who are squaring off against each other. And the actual issue of what they want and what you want gets lost in the middle of it. The actual issue of, well, let me try to see and understand what it is you're not getting that you want, and then if you can understand what it is I'm not getting that I want, we can have some civil conversations even though there's conflict, and we can probably come to an agreement or at least come to a healthy agreement that we're not going to agree on this thing. But when it becomes personal, it starts to get irrational and irreconcilable, and it becomes their pride against your pride, and I'm not backing down, they're not backing down, and I'm right, no, I'm right. And James says, this is where the anger comes in, and this is where the I'm not going to give up until I get what I want, or I'm not ever going to forgive them if they don't. And you end up with unhealthy conflict that never, ever, ever gets resolved. So, if James were here, and he were having lunch with you, and you started talking to him about some relational issue you had, I think this is a question he would ask you. What's causing your conflict? Really? Really? And most of us never quite get to this level. Is part of why these conflicts never fully get resolved. Because we never get down to acknowledging and owning for ourselves. This is actually at the root of what's causing this. I know they did that and I know they said that, but let's talk about what's really causing this. Why did that bother me so much? Well, it's because this is what I want and I don't feel like I'm getting it. I want to be understood. I don't feel like I was understood. I want to be treated with respect. I don't feel like I was treated with respect. When they did that, when you did that, when she did that, it embarrassed me. Most of us don't ever get to the point where we acknowledge this is what's going on inside of me. Okay, your actions spark something in me, but I want to address what's going on in me that was sparked by your actions because that's at the root of what I want that I'm not getting. What is causing this conflict, really? Now, if you can get to the root of it, you have a better chance of resolving it, which means you experience more of something we all want. You experience peace. Experience peace. And up to this point, everything James has said, the reality is this, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, this is just common sense. You can read this in conflict resolution books. They talk about it all the time. But James understood something, and he's about to go to this point. James understood something 
that many of us have never fully grasped, but if you do, it can change the way you view conflicts forever. James understood that you can get all the way to the point of understanding what's really at the root of your conflict. Well, this is the thing I wanted I didn't get, or this is what you know, their action or reaction created in me. But you can't stop there. That doesn't solve it. Because there is something in the way of peace, even when you understand what the root issue is. Peace is expensive. To experience peace with somebody when there's conflict, it will cost you something. It is very, very hard. I'll say it this way. Peace always comes with a price tag. This is part of why we oftentimes don't fully resolve our conflicts with people. Because to actually get to the point of having peace between us and them, peace to the extent of we may not agree on everything, we may not have totally seen this situation the same way, but we're good. That's what peace looks like. Okay, we may not totally agree, but we're good. We've, we've agreed to disagree peacefully. That kind of peace always comes with a price tag. And quite honestly, it costs so much, most of us are never willing to do it. And this is where James differentiates between those of us who follow Jesus and those of us who don't, and the, the responsibility we have, not the ability, but the responsibility we have to do something. And James says, for those of us who follow Jesus, we have a responsibility to pay the price, even though the price is high, to experience peace. And the price of peace is your pride. And it's my pride, isn't it? This is why so few conflicts get fully resolved. Because in order to experience peace, somebody or a group of somebodies have to lay down their pride and say, you don't have to meet me on my terms anymore. I want to think about you and your point of view before my own. I'm not going to demand that you see things my way before I first listen and see things your way. You see, you can't pick up peace without laying down pride. And that cost a lot. Now, for those of us who think, and some of us have been there, we go, I, I'm just not willing to do that. I'm not willing to admit that I played a part in that. I'm not willing to acknowledge that I played a role. I'm not willing to forgive them because they don't deserve to be forgiven. That's all pride. And for those of us who go, no, 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 it's, it's not worth paying that price. James says, let me just give you a little motivation as to why it's so important, even though it's expensive to pay the price, to lay down your pride, to pick up peace. Here's what he writes next. He says, that is why scripture says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. In other words, and this is shocking when you think about it, James says, I want you to understand that if you're opposed to them, God is opposed to you. If you're at odds with her, God's at odds with you. Now, why in the world would James say that? Well, for a couple of reasons. At the most basic level, God feels that way because like any good father, whenever you're at odds with, with a child of his, then you're at odds with him. Isn't that how any good father is? If you get at odds with one of my kids, you're not good with me. If, if you're in it with one of my kids, you're in it with me too. What's well, the same way with God? Everybody you lock eyes with and everybody you're in relational conflict with is someone whom God made, God loves, and Jesus died for. So when you're in the middle of conflict and you're not willing to address it in a healthy way, God says, no, 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 I'm just, you can't do that. If you're, if you're not right with them, you're not right with me. 
But at a more practical level, there's another reason that God feels this way. And it's not because he's angry with us. It's because of what he knows is best for us. Look at the last half of what James wrote here. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, think about this. You know what grace is? Grace is simply the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor of God. That's it. Which means grace and pride can never coexist. Ever. Nobody can hold grace in one hand and pride in the other. Because by its very definition, by its very nature, pride always assumes that it deserves. So I can't hold on to pride and say, well, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, and I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, and at the same time go, no, 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 I'm so grateful for grace because I didn't deserve it and I didn't earn it. You can't hold pride and grace together. They're mutually exclusive. They can't coexist. Grace only flows down. It never flows up. Grace only flows, grace is only available to the people who are willing to admit they need grace. And so God says, listen, I am opposed to you anytime you're full of pride for the simple reason that at some point in the future, the thing that you need most is the thing you're cutting yourself off from. At some point in the future, you're going to need grace. And you're not going to be able to embrace it because of that pride. So I'm going to oppose the thing that is actually going to be self-destructive to you. That's why James says, I don't want you to forget. When you're in the middle of relational conflicts, and it's just pride, it's why you can't get to the heart of what's going on. It's why you can't have a civil conversation. It's why you won't even have a conversation. James says, I just want you to remember there's way more going on here than just you and that person. Nope. God's involved in that too. You have put yourself in a position where God opposes the pride in you, and you have cut yourself off from the very thing you're going to need in the future, from experiencing grace. Because you won't, not because God won't offer it, because you won't embrace something you don't think you need. And proud people never think they need grace. Grace always flows down. So I think if James were here, and you told him your story, and I told him my story of the relational conflict and what was going on, you know, we paint the picture of all the things that they did, and how, you know, how crazy and ridiculous they've been. I think when we got to the end of all of that, no matter how bad it was, I think James would look back at us and he'd say, okay, but I want you to understand this. The only appropriate response to that conflict is humility. That's it. Yeah, but what about, he'd say, I know, I know. But for you, for you, you can't control what they do. But for you, the only appropriate response to that conflict is humility. Now, let me really quickly just touch on what humility is not. What James is not saying here is this. Humility is not, well, you should just forgive and forget. That's impossible anyway. Have you ever been able to forget something? You just can't force yourself to forget. So that's not what forgiveness is. That's not what it looks like to respond in humility. You don't just, you know, forget about it and move on. You don't act like it never happened. You don't treat it like it was not a big deal. Nope, it was a big deal. The very, the very fact that there's a conflict means it was a big deal, right? So you can't say, well, you're not supposed to say, oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry. That's not being humble. That's being dishonest. That's being disingenuous. Of course it was a big deal or there wouldn't be a conflict about it. It's not treating the person as if nothing ever happened. That's not humility. That's impossible. It's not opening yourself up and just remaining close in that relationship, even though it may be unhealthy and you don't have any boundaries. That's not what humility looks like. As a matter of fact, we're going to come back and talk about all of those tensions next week. So if you're living in the middle of that, don't miss next week because there's a big difference between forgiveness and trust. There's a big difference between humility and some of what we just talked about. But I'll tell you what humility does look like. 
humility looks like, me going, I don't think they're the only problem here. Humility is me going, instead of focusing on what they have done, let me start by looking in the mirror and focusing on me and asking myself, okay, what is causing this conflict really? Humility is when you examine yourself before you address someone else. Let me make it really practical. I think when you have an appropriate response to humility, you do at least three things, or probably more, but you do at least three things. Humble people always start by praying about it, which sounds so cliche in church, right? But here's why I say that this is part of responding in humility. Because when you go to God first before you go to anyone else, you are acknowledging, one, I need help. And two, I might be a part of it, and I want to figure out what my part is. A humble response is saying, okay, God, this really ticked me off, and you can vent all of that anger to him. But then saying, okay, I don't think I can address this and solve this on my own. I need you to intervene. I need your wisdom to know how to approach this. And I need you to show me if there is part of this that I'm responsible for. Because I don't want to go in pointing out their faults. I want to go in owning mine when I have a conversation. Now, that's a, that's a totally different approach. That's what humility looks like. You pray about it, and then you own your part. You own your action. You own your reaction. You own the fact that, okay, well, I'm really ticked off with them, but if I were honest, I didn't set good expectations. They never knew I was expecting them to do that. They never knew that was a big deal to me. I never told them that when they do that, it triggers this because of what happened when I was growing up. Humility is when you go, let's see what part of this I need to own. And maybe it's a lot of it, maybe it's a little of it, maybe it's just a fraction of it. But humble people are the people who go into the conversation owning their part before addressing the part of somebody else. And then finally, you talk to them. This is what humility does. You talk to them. You don't avoid them. You don't talk about them. You talk to them. Now, if we can be honest for a minute, this, this for many of us is the hardest part, isn't it? Because we will talk about them to a whole lot more people before we talk to them, if we ever do. But that's not humility. Humility's not gossip. You, you know, gossip is a pride move. It's never a humble move. I mean, that's obvious. You know what gossip is? It's just when you talk to someone about a problem, and that person you're talking to is not a part of the problem, and they're not a part of the solution to the problem. You're just telling them. And why are you telling them? Same reason I tell them. We've all been guilty of this. It's pride. I'm just trying to present this in such a way that makes me feel better about my case and my way, and I'm right, and I just want to hear them say, yeah, that was awful. But James says, if you understand that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble, part of responding in humility to any relational conflict is once you pray about it and once you own your part, then you're going to go talk to them. But as I said, you're going to talk to them and start with, I'm going to own my part of this. Here's the part I think I have. Here's the part at least I've seen so far. Now, before I start telling you all the things you did wrong, I would like to understand this from your point of view. So tell me why you did this. Tell me why you reacted that way. Help me to understand how we got here. Help me to understand from your seat what's causing this conflict really for you. That's humility. But that's so difficult, isn't it? Because that requires pushing aside all the emotion. That requires getting to the point where it's not about winning the fight. It's about winning the relationship, if at all possible. And that's why I think you've got to do this in this order. Because you've got to talk to God about it to get all the emotion out of the way. So that you can then see clearly to own your part. So that you, then you can go talk with them about it. So, here's a question I want to ask you. 
What conflict have you been avoiding that you need to address? It's the one you've been thinking about. It's the one I was thinking about as I was preparing this message, right? It just comes to mind. You know what it is. What's the conflict you've been avoiding? It's that issue with the person at the workplace, and you just don't want to address it because it's going to be awkward or difficult, or you, you keep saying it's not going to solve anything, it's just not going to solve anything, so I'm not going to do it. It's the deal with the family member. It's the, the situation between you and your spouse, and y'all have just gone on for months or maybe for years and just swept it under the rug, and you've never talked about it. It's that situation with a friend, and it's just a little awkward. It's always there. It's like the elephant in the room, but nobody wants to bring it up. Or it's that thing that caused you and them to stop speaking and you just dodge each other and avoid each other now, but nobody's ever sat down and actually had a conversation about it. What is the conflict that you've been avoiding? That. If you took seriously what James said and you really believe that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, and you decided, you know what, the only appropriate response to this conflict is humility, what's, what would that require of you to do? What would it require of you to do? It wouldn't necessarily require you to resume the relationship like nothing happened. It wouldn't necessarily require you to act as if everything's good between the two of you or even to invite them back into your life. You may not need to do that. You may need some very healthy boundaries. We're going to talk more about that next week. But what it would require of you is to choose humility. What it would require of you is to pray about it, to own your part, and to talk to them. Here's what I know. The thing that we all want most, whether you're a Christian or not, the thing that we all want most in our life is peace. That's what we value. And the reason we value peace so much is because peace makes us happy. Think about it. In the end, what is it that always makes you happy? It's when you're at peace. It's when you're at peace with yourself. It's when you're at peace with others. It's when you're at peace with God. When you're at peace with those three groups... You're happy in life. doesn't matter how much or how little you have. That's not what makes you happy. What makes you happy is peace. But peace comes with a price tag. And that price tag is your pride, and that price tag is my pride. So this week, whatever the conflict is that came to mind, or whatever the conflict is that pops up, however big or small it may feel, I would suggest that there's only one response that'll actually give you what you most want, and it's humility. You say, but Matt, I, I'll talk to them, or I've tried to talk to them, and we couldn't resolve it, and they, they're not going to cooperate, or they didn't cooperate. I understand. We're going to talk about all that next week. But what they do has no impact on your peace. Your peace is not a byproduct of someone choosing to cooperate and reconcile a situation with you. Your peace is a byproduct of you choosing humility and doing what you know is right and what you know you should do. Because the minute you do that, you put yourself in a position to continue to be the extraordinary recipient of God's amazing grace. And you find yourself at peace. But it comes with a price tag. You have to lay down your pride, and I have to lay down my pride, and you have to decide this week, is that really worth it? Let me pray for us. Father, I don't know all the circumstances and situations that we're all facing. I just know that we all deal with relational conflict. It's a part of it. 
Sometimes it's really messy and difficult. Sometimes it just seems to be small things and we just try to ignore it and then it turns into something bigger. What I do know is, no matter how complex or simple the conflict is, our pride always tends to get in the way and make it worse. So regardless of what all the circumstances are, would you give us enough wisdom to know what we need to do with this? Enough wisdom to know what it looks like in our circumstance to lay down our pride, to own our part, what it looks like to have a conversation where we approach in humility that person or that group of people. And would you give us enough boldness and courage to be able to do that, no matter what their response may be? Help us to have enough courage to be willing to lay down our pride and pay the price that we need to pay to experience peace. Thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for not waiting for us to come to you. You came to us when things weren't right between us. Thank you for Jesus' death on the cross and the price he paid so that we could be reconciled to you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.